This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Okay, today I am joined by Michael Gibson, a very, very interesting guy. He is a co-founder of the 1517 Fund, which is a new venture capital fund that we're going to talk about. Formerly, he was the vice president of the Teal Foundation, um, which is well known for supporting the Teal Fellowship or the 20 Under 20 program, where um, tech investor Peter Teal uh, established this to basically pay smart young people to not go to college, but to start a business instead. And Michael has a really interesting sort of unlikely path, I guess, to um, being in Silicon Valley in the in the venture capital world, the startup world, because at heart he is, I would say, uh, a philosopher, a, a literary man. Um, I don't know, Michael, is that is that a fair description? <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. your, your Twitter handle, uh, William underscore Blake, it says... Yeah. Um, philosopher poet but you work in vc something to that yeah, effect exactly <laughs> uh yeah it has to do with my background i thought i was going to be a professor i worked hard towards a phd and on the way i just lost the faith and uh and and left school before i finished okay um, but i but but i studied philosophy and uh i still try to keep close to the subject so you've got me hooked already Let, let's get a little deeper on your personal story so leading up to what sort of got you to the point where you were like, I want to go and get a PhD. I want to be, you know, was it, when, when did your sort of intellectual life begin and, and kind of walk us through uh, leading into going into a PhD program and then dropping out and, and what came next? Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it was very imitative. So when I was 18 or so, I read a lot of Tom Wolfe. I love him. I think he's a brilliant writer, just sharp satirical take on all sorts of things. So he's written novels. He's written a lot of uh, great pieces of journalism. And I, and I deeply admired him. So I was reading one of his books one day. And on the back of the book, it had his little author bio. And it said that he had studied for a PhD in American studies at Yale. And so I, I remember just thinking, wow, you know, I, it's like, here's someone I admire. I wish I could write this well. And, uh, you know, just make, if I could one day write things that would make other people laugh the way that he made me laugh, that would be an incredible career. And so I thought I needed a PhD to do it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it was something about that, that, that led me down the path. And then in addition to that, it was just, I, I had a research type bent. I, I, I was just totally, uh, enthralled by the questions of philosophy. Hmm. I have a background in, in the classics, so I studied ancient Greek and, uh, and Latin, but with, with Greek is, is, of course, you're reading Plato, and, and I find many of those questions going all the way back to the dialogues very relevant even today. Uh, so it, it, it was the combination of this aspirational limitation plus just the love of the subject matter that led me uh, down that path. So I, I went, to, I was at University of Oxford studying towards uh, what they call a, a defil in philosophy. And, you know, what happened was there, there's that sort of admiration I had for the subject matter and, and the hard questions. You know, what what is free will? Mm -hmm. uh, what is justice? Uh, you know, what is wisdom? 
And those essential questions are sort of lost in the professionalization of the subject. Yeah. You, you kind of, so, once you're, once you're past the, you know, undergraduate 100 yeah. level, like where everyone's up till two in the morning, getting drunk, grappling with those, it, it's sadly kind of rare to find those in the higher echelons. Yeah, exactly right. So the deeper I went, the more it felt like specialized training to become this uh, clerk in some long forgotten law firm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. So, so in particular, I was at a grad school conference in uh, at Dartmouth. I was scheduled to give a talk based on a paper I had written on uh, meta ethics. You know, why are what what makes what does it mean for something to be right or wrong, and I was talking to a room of 20 people and I'm not saying I, I was terrible at what I did, but it, it just dawned on me. I had this visceral reaction where I was thinking, I'm never going to convince anyone of anything. And I'm only adding a 10th, you know, a decimal place to already existing views. It's like, this is not, I, I can't do this when I'm 55. There's nothing here. I mean, what, what I really wanted to do was, and it goes back to that other piece, which was, it's like, if, if I wanted to write books, if I wanted to create I, I didn't need a doctorate to do it. <laughs> it's like as, as, as inspiring as that was, and as much as I love the subject, I mean, that's a huge sunk cost to think that like to become a, someone who can contribute to debate and ideas at the highest level that, that I needed a PhD to do it. And so already, I guess the, the seeds of uh, working with Peter were, were in my attitude uh, in, in the sense that, you know, it's really about the substance of what you want to do, not necessarily, you know, the credentials to do it. And, and so I, I stepped away, uh, so that conference, I gave that talk that was in the summertime by, by the next winter I had dropped out just cause the, the, the love wasn't there. And, and I, and I just thought I would write on my own and, and, and get started. So my first job was at technology review. It's a magazine owned by MIT and uh, I was I, I was just covering uh, technology and science. Were, were you a big buff of technology already or did you have to kind of learn that to do the job? I, I, I did have to learn a lot. It, it was awesome. I mean, one of the great things of being uh, at that magazine was any story I, I started to write or was assigned to write. I had access to any of the professors and researchers on MIT's campus. So it was like, I, it was, I was getting some of the great benefits of being on a college campus without actually having to be a student. So yeah. if I had to write a story on uh, quantum computing, I had a meeting with a professor who was working on it and they're probably, you know, pretty like top of the field. So yeah. it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was challenging cause I had to learn a lot, but, but I was, uh, I, I was just exploring whole new spaces and that was fun. I want, I want to pause your, your journey there before we get to how you got connected with Teal and, and everything yeah. that's, that's come after. Cause I want to kind of look, ask a little bit more about academia. Um, cause I find what you said very interesting that like, it sounds to me like you were someone who was motivated by kind of being on the frontiers, like pushing new ideas, exploring new spaces, trying to get into those unexplored areas and, you know, push, push the boundaries, push the frontiers, whether in ideas or in, um, you know, actual like implementation in the world and in the way that yep. institutions or technology. And I think that's a common, that's a common desire that can drive ideas, people into, you know, career in ideas, academia typically, or yep. tech people or entrepreneurs. And typically in, in all of those spheres, 
if you're bright and you show a lot of promise, you can very easily be channeled into a predefined path that says, oh, you're one of these people that wants to to be pushing the boundaries and you get yeah. sort of pushed to a, you know, let's say if it's in, if it's in say entrepreneurship or business, you get pushed to a management level position at a fortune 500 mm. company, or if it's in academia, oh, well, you'll then be the chair of something. And it almost has this opposite effect because you, you get rewarded within an institution that by its nature, because it's an institution, a, a sort of, you know, place that's been there for a while, yep. it's not quite at the forefront. It's always kind of not, not actively defending, but, but living out the status quo rather than sort of pushing it. And there's yeah. a, there's a weird tension there. So, I mean, tell me about how, how did you, cause how did you decide to break from that? Because academia, mm-hmm. I think the thing it does best is produce academics. Yeah. Right. And, and like, that's the one thing I talk to a lot of people who agree with the thesis that like, Hey, look, college isn't the best way to prepare to be an entrepreneur or a world changer, a coder. But like, if you want to be an academic, it's really a perfect mm-hmm. fit for that. But, but you're like an ideas guy and you didn't find it to be a fit. When was that? I guess, how did that transition happen? And did you get a lot of flack for that? I guess I was just very naive about it. I, I, uh, <laughs> I always envisioned that it'd be the world of uh, free discussion that, uh, you know, no idea would be ridiculed based on prejudice, but you know, only insofar <laughs> as, it, as it merited it. Uh, and, and yet slowly over time, the onion peeled and it was like, holy shit, the, uh, you know, the incentives are such, as you said, to, uh, you know, just continue already existing institutions to, if you think about the incentive structure of just becoming an academic, it is largely to reproduce uh, what already exists. So for example, it's very hard to get into graduate school programs, uh, PhDs and in the sciences and the humanities. But in the humanities, because this is my experience, is it's, you know, maybe the, uh, the top schools will take all of maybe 10, 12 candidates uh, in any year in any department in, in philosophy. To get into that extremely small uh, entrance to acceptance, um, you know, you need everyone has the same test scores. Everyone has the same grades. Uh, so what really turns the matter is, you know, who are the professors re- recommending you hmm. and how well do the professors in the department you're applying to know those people? So how do you get these recommendations? Well, you're 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 largely going to have to make those professors feel good about themselves. You can't you certainly can't challenge their views too baldly uh, because then there's no way they'll write you a recommendation. So already you, you you're you're becoming a parrot or adding nuance to someone's already existing views just so you can win their approval to get those uh, hmm. recommendations to get into the PhD. And then this same sort of dynamic applies as you scale the ladder. So the next step would be you're a grad student. Now you need advisors for your dissertation. How are you going to find advisors who disagree with you if you're, if you're just so far out there trying something new? It's very hard. Uh, and then at the next level, you become a, a, an associate professor who's on the tenure track. How are you going to get tenure if you have radical views? I think so all the way up yeah. is a filter for weeding out people who don't fit in uh, the status quo. Do you feel like or did you feel like, well, I guess if I'm not willing to tolerate this, I basically have to leave the world of ideas because you can't be taken seriously as an intellectual if you're not a PhD. I guess I'll go have to enter the so-called practical world. Or were you like, hey, look, I can be an independent intellectual 
a lot of the greatest intellectuals we know of were never part of any formal academic structure. Did, did, yeah. You know what I mean? What did you have like a, cause I know, I do know a lot of people who are very interested in academia and when they yeah. say, look, I've seen enough of it to know I don't want to spend all my time fighting over parking spots. They have <laughs> yeah. this, they have this moment where they feel like it's defeat. Like, well, I guess I can't be an ideas person. I'll go get a job as if those are, are so separate. Was that, was that something that you went through or did you say like, Hey, look, I can be an intellectual without the institution. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the dawning realization actually, uh, was, was just that I, I thought I had it within my capabilities to, to learn on my own outside of the institution and then hopefully produce work that, uh, was of that caliber or at least inspired people, provoked them to, to think about things or change their mind. Any, any of the sort of consequences that you might hope for. I, yeah, I, I can't remember though. It was no specific role model or person. It wasn't the case that I, I, I said, oh, well, look at intellectual X or author X. And, and that person didn't have a degree. It was just, I guess it was my own self, uh, probably over overinflated confidence, like oh, you know, you could do it, but uh, but yeah, I think that was definitely part of it. So did you did you feel like did your you know sort of old philosophy buddies feel like oh you're selling out now you're writing articles for a magazine instead of you know articles for publication in a journal? Uh, I did have I I have this friend who back at Oxford and he actually sat me down when I <laughs> when I, <laughs> I I said I was leaving. And he, he was trying to he used the analogy of superheroes. He's like, look, the you know, the intellectual capital that universities have uh, it, it, like endows the the academics to be like superheroes <laughs> and like Spider-Man with with power comes great responsibilities. So it's your duty to actually do this. You can't leave. It's like you got to stay because there's a world to heal. There are problems to solve. And, and, and you we've know, invested I, in you, Michael. Yeah. You're the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. I loved his enthusiasm and I loved his loyalty to me and his friendship that he wanted me around. But, but it was also in the, in the more so I've been out of school to look back on that and say, Whoa, you know, that's so diluted. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you were writing for this technology magazine and yeah. kind of getting to know that sphere a little bit better, working yep. around some cutting edge stuff. How did that lead to uh, your next steps? Yeah. So there were two, two paths that emerged on that. One was, uh, so I studied political philosophy. I've always been interested in ideas of competitive governance. This is the idea that, you know, that governments and on all sorts of higher levels of the hierarchy should compete like businesses to help their customers. Um, I had been fond of the philosopher, Robert Nozick. He wrote a book called Anarchy State Utopia. Oh, great, great book. Yeah, it's an awesome book. A lot of academics focus on anarchy and state. They don't really read the last section of the book, Utopia, uh, which I think is so fascinating because mm. it touches on this idea of uh, competitive jurisdictions. Yeah. And so I, I was a huge fan of that. I loved it. And then when I left school, about the maybe a, a year after I left, Patry Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman's grandson, had started an organization called the Seasteading Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, the Seasteading Institute is dedicated to uh, creating autonomous ocean communities. The thought is that all the territory on this planet has been claimed by some sovereign entity or another, uh, but the only thing left unclaimed right now is is the are the oceans. And uh, if we could find some ways, technologies, 
to enable people to establish small villages or housing communities, and, and maybe those could turn into something as large as a city, it would create a, a point of new entry for governance. So we, we might see more innovation in, in the way things are done. So that I was really inspired by Patry's vision. Uh, Peter was the, the first uh, donator to the Seasteading Institute to get it started. And at the time it, it kicked off, Patry just on his personal blog, put out that he was looking for help uh, editing materials, writing. Uh, he was thinking about starting a blog to discuss the the motivations behind the idea of seasteading. So I just wrote to him and it connected with the thoughts uh, that I had had in hmm. graduate school about competitive governance, especially that last piece of Nozick's book. And, and so I said, yeah, I'd be happy to contribute. Uh, so, so I came on board. We started a blog together. It's called Let a Thousand Nations Bloom. It's still around. You can see it, thousandnations.com. And every so often, someone will post something new to it, but not as much as we used to. Uh, so, so that was one contact with Peter. Now, the other was just through technology coverage. I had never, I had known PayPal, of course, but I had never known about the people who created it. And I was assigned a story. Uh, to write about Max Levchin. He's one of the co-founders of PayPal, the, the CTO. And he had won an award from Technology Review in 2002. And that's the same year that PayPal was sold to eBay for $1.5 billion. So I, 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 it was a retrospective article. It had been five years uh, in interview. And so I, I, I was going to, I did a Q&A with him and I called, up, I called him on the phone. And I just remember it was like so one of those moments where you get hit in the head. Um, I said, you know, so you won this award five years ago, you sold PayPal to eBay for all this money. Uh, you know, is there anything you'd tell your younger self to do differently uh, in retrospect? And, and he says to me on the phone, he says, yeah. So after we sold the company, I took a year off. I traveled the world. I lived on a beach and it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> but that was it. It was like, what? who is this guy? So <laughs> I was like, okay, why? And he said, all my friends were building great companies, but I was just consuming. And it really got to me. Hmm. I, was like, I was like, man, who are your friends? <laughs> so I looked it up. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, his friends are like Elon Musk, who's this guy. And at the time, this is 2007. It's like, so SpaceX and Tesla had started, but they're nowhere nearly as well known as they are now. And so I come across this guy who has built a private rocket ship company. <laughs> like, Whoa, holy cow. I was just, it, it just was so, um, I was awestruck. Yeah. And then of course I, I came across Peter's name. All these people are now known as the PayPal mafia. I was just, I was thinking, this is incredible. Look at all these talented people starting these companies that are, uh, just global and, you know, they're global industry leaders now. So um, I want to yeah, go for it. quickly just mention something that I, uh, that really stuck out to me as you're going through this narrative about, and, and, you know, I'm sure this will be one of your points of contact that led you to working with Peter, et cetera. But you saw this blog saying this organization, this mission that you liked saying, Hey, we're looking for some people to help with some stuff. And you jumped on that. And one of the things I, I find really interesting, a lot of young people um, that I work with in Praxis or just other spaces, they get so focused on looking for a job that yeah. they overlook opportunities. Yeah. And I'm always telling them, like, put yourself in a position 
where you can't afford to work for free, even if it's just on the side, because there's stuff that you love and the chances that like, you're going to be able to immediately go make 40 grand, 50, 60 grand a year to do what you love by just like sending resumes out are really, really low, but you always want to be in a position where you can eat and then you have enough time to do something for free. So if you see your, your, a company that you find fascinating, you can go to them and say, I want to do this for you for free. Or if there's an opportunity like what you saw say, yeah, I'm up for it. I'll do some editing. I'll blog once a week. I'll do what you need me to do. And being able to see those opportunities just because they don't come with an official title and a salary and a business card, like those are some of the most valuable um, things that you can jump on ever. I think that's a, that's a great. Look, absolutely. I can't encourage that enough because it's led to my whole career. (laughs) So it was like from that blog in contact with Pottery, that's, that's how I entered the orbit of people who work for Peter. And it was at ephemeral in 2010 that I met two people who worked for Peter's hedge fund. And they mentioned that they, uh, that there was this job opening in research and, and I didn't want to work in finance, but because it was Peter, I was captivated by having the PayPal mafia and <laughs> in particular Peter's, uh, brand of libertarianism and his, his just view of technology as an integral part of, uh, just progress. You know, it, 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 I, I had to jump on that opportunity. Hmm. And, and of course, when I, I, I interviewed with people at, at Clarium, the hedge fund, and yeah. then, uh, when I, when I ended with Peter, it was like the thing that we talked about in every interview, I mean, pretty much every discussion was these people had been reading my blog. It's <laughs> like, so <laughs> it, I, even though we only had uh, a, a few thousand readers of that, they were very important people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, the thing so, is like when they went to yeah. look for you, there was something there, there was product there. There was more than yeah. just a LinkedIn page with a bullet point list of I'm um, associated with the following institutions. It was like, here's this guy's brain. Here's how he thinks. Here's yeah. something he's actually completed and produced. That's a, that's a powerful, uh, powerful signal. Okay. So you ended up basically in the VC world a few years out of being sort of an academic. What was, yeah. I mean, what was so, that like? Was that weird for you? Well, first it was, uh, I was, so I was hired to work at Peter's hedge fund. Uh, Peter was, uh, also going to teach a class at Stanford, uh, at the law school. This is not the class that became zero to one, but before that he taught a class on globalization, technology, and sovereignty. And, uh, you know, the two thirds of that certainly had to do with what I studied just about competitive governance and seasteading. And, and Peter asked me if I would uh, help him teach that class. So it was just this huge opportunity I couldn't turn down. And that's why I was hired. Uh, so, I here, show so here you are teaching a yeah. co-teaching a class at Stanford well, well, we <laughs> after you left right, academia. <laughs> yeah, right. That happened. That did happen. Uh, so I was hired. Uh, my first day of work was September 27th, uh, 2010. And, and, and the reason I remember that is because I show up to work. I had a, uh, a desk on the trading floor and my colleague comes over and he says, you know, we got to go to Peter's house. I said, why? And he says, well, you know, we, on the la- last night we were flying back from New York uh, to San Francisco and we decided that we're going to move forward with this idea we have to pay people to leave school to work on stuff. I was like, holy shit, that sounds awesome. Let's go. So we walk over to Peter's house. The deal was that it was TechCrunch Disrupt and they had decided that this would be the best place for Peter to announce 
this creation to the world. And, and I mean, they're, they're, literally it was like bare bones. I mean, we, I go to Peter's house, we get in a limo. I'm with uh, Jim, my colleague and Peter, and, and we're just discussing, okay, what do we call this? <laughs> what are some of the details? I'm backstage at this conference center. There are some reporters around, other people who paid to be backstage. And it's like, holy, holy cow, this is just nuts. So, uh, you know, Peter gets out there on stage. He's interviewed by Sarah Lacey. You can look it up. And, and he announces this as if, you know, as, as if he had been thinking about it for, for months and months. But, uh, you know, it was a fast start. Uh, so that was the, the birth of the Teal Fellowship. And I, I was a part of that from its founding to to the the present, pretty it's, much. And it sounds like an episode of Silicon Valley that you just described. yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I tell people that that show is actually a documentary and not satire. When you yeah. when you keep saying Peter, I keep thinking of Peter Gregory in that show, and it keeps yeah. coming up. Yeah. Um, so okay, so the the fellowship was launched and. What was the, do you feel like in the first, you know, year, the first wave of people applying for this, yep. did you feel like, okay, this is what we wanted it to be. This is working. Or was it like, what the hell are we doing? Uh, you know, we did have a lot to learn in the first year, especially because we launched in September and we had an application deadline for, uh, December 31st, if I remember correctly. So we didn't really have time to ramp up a, a recruiting pipeline we we had we just had to hope that you know enough and, and and it was amazing and surprising uh the the attention we got from the media oh i remember i mean when that first came out i remember seeing it everywhere and being like dude i have to meet these people this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah so that that did work wonders and that was great we got a lot of people knocking on our door because of that but uh over the years i've just we've come to see that uh, recruiting takes time. It's a, it's really just, there's so many incredible people working on interesting things and, and you gotta, you gotta go find them and you gotta talk to them and help them out all along the way. It's not, I've come to philosophically, it's like maybe we were too imitative of colleges yes. or traditional signs of success in the beginning. So let's take the, an application. I am philosophically against applications now, especially with respect to working on these kinds of projects, because the information, uh, it's like fruit. It starts off very fresh and gets and decays and gets rotten rapidly. So you meet someone one day, they're working on something and in two weeks, they could make amazing progress. But on an application, you wouldn't know that because it's, huh. it's silent, right? So what, what, what have you transitioned to more of a, a farm team, a way to identify and sort of build relationships over time and then and yeah. approach people and say, Hey, we think you're ready. We want you to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the door is always open the application. Anyone can fill it out without having uh, met anyone. And, th and that's fantastic. But you know, a lot of the great candidates come from, uh, you know, people who have have been in the teal ecosystem. There's the summit every year. Maybe they've come to that. Maybe they know someone who who went to that. There are the the hackathons on college campuses and hacker houses, and and we we always uh, try to have a presence at these events and talk to people, take office hours, hear about what they're working on. So yeah, it does bear a strong resemblance, I think, to other forms of talent scouting, whether it be, uh, sports or entertainment or, or maybe even like spy work. I don't know. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I've always, so I used to work in a, in a 
nonprofit that did a lot of talent identification and cultivation, ironically enough, primarily to help people uh, become professors, but <laughs> people okay. with sort of classical liberal ideas and whatever. But the, oh, right. there was always this, there was always this sort of, if you put out there, Hey, we have scholarships available. Hey, we have stuff that will benefit you apply for it. It's so much lower quality and it's so much harder to, as you pointed out to judge, but it's very intensive, very time intensive, not sort of scalable in the, in yeah. the way that software is scalable to build a talent pipeline and to say, we've got a bunch of stuff out here that people who, who are curious and interested in this stuff, they'll find it, they'll bump into it. And once they bump into it, once they're sort of in that ecosystem, if they're really good, we'll hear about them pretty soon because their yeah. reputation will spread and then we can come to them. And that's hard for people who are impatient, who are like, let's ramp up the numbers, let's grow fast. And it's <laughs> yeah. it, it's a challenge, but I think talent, I mean, human beings, it's a different world. It does, not everything has to be scalable, right? Not everything has yeah. to be software. And I think you just need that sort of reputational network type of a, a pipeline right. in those in those areas, which uh, is also very similar, by the way, to, to the way that I assume the um, the deal flow works in a, the venture capital world, which we'll, yeah, that's exactly right. I we'll we'll so. get to that in a second. I want to hold off on that for just a few minutes, but um, yeah. Well, one thing I'll follow up on on the application go the for program it. is I think in the first year we we asked for what college did you go to, uh, list, you know what exams you've taken. We had people could tell us what AP exams they've taken. You know, in the event we found all of this is is not of interest in terms of uh, how well someone will do when they're actually trying to build something out in the world, in the real world. Uh, so we no longer ask for those things directly. I mean, people, it of course always helps to know if someone's from, you know, the great tech schools, Stanford, MIT, of course, that's interesting. But, uh, you know, what we found is that uh, being an entrepreneur takes a, a, a certain type of conviction, a certain type of hustle, commitment and grit and, and so on. And these things aren't readable, readily de demonstrable on an application. No, no so, I, I, we call it the sleep in your car test at Praxis. Yeah. Okay, it's, cool, you know, it's yeah. like there are people who are, who are willing to sleep in their car to get what they want in life and those who aren't. Yeah. And trying to tease that out and figure out who has that quality, you know, who, who wants it, who's who's ready to go after it. Um, that's a tough one to tease out and certainly just a static list of sort of accomplishments and activities doesn't, doesn't do the trick. No. Yeah. So, so you, so you ran, so just to, to, for people who don't know the, the way that the fellowship works, there's 20 people accepted every year. Maybe this is different now and they get, what is it? A hundred thousand dollars to start a, a, to launch a business, uh, in right. that year or two year span. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the media has portrayed it in the past as focusing solely on uh, starting companies. We've had 84 fellows. Uh, only about 36 of them have actually started companies that receive financing. Uh, That's still it, pretty dang good. The, yeah, but the, the thing is that the other people, it's not that like they started companies and they failed. What happened was they were working on nonprofits. They were working on scientific research. Uh, or they were working as early employees at other tech companies. So, so, so some kind of project or something to be a part of that was more valuable than their time in school. And so yeah, you, you exactly. help them help them do that. Okay. Yeah. So you did this for what, how many, how many years have it been? Yeah. So we just, we just brought in our fifth class. So okay. that brings it to 104. Um, the, as I said, across the first four years, there were 84. Um, and yeah, I mean, the of the th the thirty six, you know, the, the so the equity value of those companies created 
especially by, uh, you know, there are some outperforming companies for sure that, that skew this, but all told it's, it's, they've created more than 600 million in equity value, wow. which means that given the amount of money that venture capitalists are investing in these companies, the implied market cap of these companies is more than 600 million. So it's pretty, it's, you know, when we started, I never, we were only, it was 19 and under, but when you had to apply, we're only taking 20 a year. Not all of them are working on companies. And so given all those constraints, I mean, I am just, my mind is blown. <laughs> it's like, this is the size of a, of some college endowments. Yeah. So if you look at some, I don't know, not the top schools, but it's like, holy cow. So you yeah. feel like it's been, when you set out to do this was the primary motivation find a small number of really bright people that we can help get started quicker and stop wasting their time and do great things for the world? Or was it yep. bigger than that? Was it, let's change the way everybody views college and views young people and what they should be doing with their time? Like, was it more of a, let's make a cultural shift? That's certainly, yeah, that's definitely part of the story. There, there, there was some economic thinking behind it. There's lots of debates in economics about the value of higher education, the, the signaling theory. And, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and certainly I think those, those theories were circulating at the time. There was also just the, uh, that one thing Peter constantly thinks about is, is imitation and herd dynamics or group group dynamics. And yep. he, he tend like one of his, one of his intellectual, uh, like, I don't know, the chief, someone Peter really looks up to is, is Rene Girard. He is a, uh, French, literary theorist and anthropologist who's a professor at Stanford. And, and, and Girard has certain views about why we imitate each other and, and why we seem so prone to it. So it's something Peter's very sensitive to. So I did, a, I did a short podcast episode several weeks ago or maybe several months ago on because I had read his book, uh, The Scapegoat. And, um, oh, wow, okay, yeah. oh, man, I mean, there's so much in there. I need to read more Girard. It's, it's really, yeah. really fascinating. The whole like I mean, mimetic it, desire idea is, is fascinating. Yeah, right. And uh, th there's a lecture from Peter's CS course. Uh, it's the last one. I think it's called Founder is Victim, Founder is God. Yes. It, that turned into the last chapter of Zero to One. But if you go to the notes on Blake Masters' website, uh, you really get a sense of how Girard influences Peter's thought and, and, and with respect to startups and founders and investing. So, and so this idea of, we have this culture of everybody who just wants this achievement, this credential because everybody else wants it. And because yeah, it's viewed right, as, so. you know, your, your, your aunt Sue will be proud of you at the family picnic, no matter what else your life is like, if you have a degree, but if you don't have one, she'll be concerned. And so we're all just like pushing to get this thing just so that we can all be like everyone else rather than yeah. sort of forging our own. That's right. I think people want to hear reasons for action. Uh, so it stands as a good reason that whatever you want to do in your life, you would, you would go to college. Uh, what is totally unintelligible, at least until recently, is is or at least it's it's become really rare, is to just say, hey, you know, I'm doing this thing, and it, I, it's I it doesn't really fit into the university system. I'm building a company, or I'm doing something else, writing books, I don't know, nonprofit, and and it's just different, right? Is that like that comes across <laughs> as very unintelligible, I think, to your aunt Sue. Yeah. So, uh, so the fellowship was created in part to uh, provide that reason that made sense to really validate uh, 
the walks down the unbeaten path or, or the renegades or the people on the frontier. Yeah. yeah. One of the challenges in, in combating that mindset that I run into a lot is like, I don't know. It's like the, the Steve jobs myth, the Mark Zuckerberg myth, basically right. that, okay, sure. Isaac, sure. Michael, I'll grant you that not everybody needs to go to college, but you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you can drop out. And you know, <laughs> if you're brilliant enough to get a bunch of venture capital and go build a company. Yeah. And I think the challenge is, and, and that's become accepted. It's become accepted that if you're a tech star, uh, then maybe like, like I would almost say dropping out of an Ivy league school is probably more accepted in people's eyes than dropping yep. out of a mid tier state school when you're studying business sure. or psychology, because it's like, well, what are you going to do? You're not going to be the next, you know, billionaire tech founder. And I think that's the, the sort of the next level of the challenge is to say, it's not only if you're brilliant enough to build a massive company today, uh, mm -hmm. college might not be necessary, but even for a wide variety of the huge variety of things, college can be completely unnecessary. I, a quick, yep. quick story to illustrate this. And I, I want to get back to, to, to your story, but my friend was just telling me about, he had an Uber driver who said, um, he, he lived in LA and he said, yeah, I've been moving pianos since I was 17 with my buddy. And, um, he's like 25. And he said, he said, I make, I make about 80 grand a year moving pianos. Whoa. And then I drive Uber, uh, on the side here and there. He's like, it's amazing how many people need pianos moved. It's not, not a lot of competition. I've got a good network. You know, I go into, sometimes it's moving from one room to the next, whatever. Yeah. And he's talking about how he's got this good life, whatever. And he said, but you know, I, I, um, somehow it came up like, do you have any regrets? And he said, yeah, I, I, I should have gone to college. And right. my friend asked him, he said, well, he said, did your friends go to college? Yeah. Most of my friends went to college. And he said, well, let me ask you how well are they doing? And he said the guy paused and he could see him on the spot having this epiphany going, oh my gosh, every one of my friends is struggling and not doing as well as I'm doing. They don't make as much money. Some of them don't have a job. They're trying to pay back. And he like had this realization. It was right in front of him this whole time that he was doing just fine without, <laughs> but he felt like he should have done it. Like yeah. that was the right thing to do. And somehow he failed himself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's truly, truly a bizarre thing, but yeah. Cause I think the, the whole trend has created an, an uh, what amounts to an underclass and status in, even in their own mind mm. is like, it's, it's just perceived as low status not to have gone to college. And uh, man, that's just wreaks havoc psychologically for people. Yeah, uh, it's really bad. It's like you know, that you have this permanent dunce cap on your head just because you didn't go. That's absurd. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I find a lot of brilliant, um, you know, business people who they've got kids and their kids are saying things like, "Hey, you know, I I want to." You know, like I talk to them if they're like saying applying for the Praxis program. I want to do this. I don't know if I want to go to school. And the parents will say it's really common to hear very successful business owning parents say, I didn't go to college. That's why I work so hard so that you. Yeah. Can. Right. And I'm like, but you're so successful and happy. Your kid sees that they see that you didn't need college, but they have this feeling of inferiority. Like I didn't go because I couldn't afford it. And yep. I want to make sure that you don't have to feel like you're, you know, a second class citizen for not being able to afford it. And the kid's like, but I don't even want to go. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's weird. Okay. So let me yeah. ask you about the, so you, you were doing the, um, foundation work and yep. uh, working on this, this fellowship, but very recently you have launched a venture capital fund. So you are the, yep. the a founder, co-founder of the 1517 fund. So tell me, Tell us first about the name and then about the fund and what, what are the goals and where are you at with it? Yeah, sure thing. So the, the, the fund we've started, I co-founded with Danielle Strachman. Uh, she was 
program director with me on the on the fellowship. And uh, as I said, but the, the fellowship is a nonprofit, no strings grant. Fantastic. Uh, but we did see a lot of great companies emerge from uh, the Teal Fellowship. Uh, and in addition, you know, it's only 20 spots. So we know that we've seen way more talent out there than that. There are lots of people building great companies. There's this uh, there is a trend in technology now where people are getting started earlier. They're uh, learning how to code at the age of 10. And I meet people now who are 18 and they've got eight years experience. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, the, the trend is just pushing. Over the last 10 years, if you look at a lot of the great companies, or at least in terms of uh, their valuations, uh, you know, it's seven or eight of them over, and these are multi-billion dollar companies, were started. But by people between the ages of 18 and 23. Uh, so I don't think, you know, I see this as just a huge opportunity. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, it's like Moneyball in the sense that you have all this talent uh, locked up in schools doing things uh, that they otherwise wouldn't do. Hmm. And if they just focus on creating value instead of trying to uh, earn a credential, there's a lot of, uh, great companies that we could see coming out of that. So it's an extension of the Teal Fellowship in that we will, uh, we're, we're looking to make investments in companies founded by people between the ages of 18 to 23, working, you know, working on something probably outside of school, and, and we're there to, to help them out. Um, the, the name is from, uh, so Peter Teal wrote this op-ed for Wa uh, Washington Post. I can't remember how long ago now. I'm guessing about six or eight months and and he made this comparison uh between the modern university system and the in the establishment church of the 16th century which purchasing is bit, and indulgences yeah. yeah that's right so martin luther uh, uh who kick-started the protestant reformation uh yeah he was when he nailed his theses to the door it was in protest to a specific thing and it was the this piece of paper called an indulgence uh, the, the, the Catholic church at the time was just minting money, selling this piece of paper, uh, because people could absolve their sins and get into heaven just by buying it. <laughs> so 1517 so, was the year that, that Luther. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. It's the year Luther nailed his theses to the door. And so our, our, our mission is that, or, you know, our, our mantra is, uh, you know, it was ridiculous then. And, you know, universities are selling a piece of paper telling you it's the only way you can save your soul. It's Yale or fail. <laughs> and we say it's ridiculous now. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So the fund is you're currently raising money and you haven't started, um, you haven't started looking for investments yet. Uh, so we've raised money and we're looking for investments. Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is there a website? I, I looked for it. I found we the did. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have a website up yet. We're, okay. we're working on it. But yeah, we're just, we, so we're just getting started. Uh, we're, we're, we've made our, a few, a couple investments and, and Great. we're looking to meet more people. And you're kind of building off of, I'm assuming this, Hey, look, we've built this talent network that's finding and identifying all these talented young people. So you're kind of working with that as your initial deal flow, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, I, you know, if, that, so that's certainly true. The past, uh, we've got a lot of relationships with young entrepreneurs and, and a lot of the hotbeds of interesting activity and talent. And, but we, I also know it's, it's about 
being out there and meeting people. It's it's really about forming these relationships. So we see ourselves as, uh, even though we're, we're venture capitalists, we're also Spartan, Lewis and Clark. We know we got to go out on the road and meet people and talk to them and help them out long before they've uh, reached a point where they have a product. That, that's, uh, it's funny. I think so many people, I mean, I think just people tend to, to envy all kinds of different positions and assume that everything is easier than whatever they're doing. But, but I think the yeah. idea of, of venture capitalists, especially you have this notion of, you know, so, some rich dude sitting in a chair, drumming his <laughs> yeah, fingers right. and there, and there's text. just like, yeah, just a line of supplicants, <laughs> you know, coming out. And it's really, yeah. it's really out. Like VCs are, are typically they're in sales too. They're out there prospecting all the time. They're they're They yeah. need deals. They need to find people. Uh, it's, it's a very fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, world. that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, so I'm hustling just like everyone else. <laughs> so how do you, do you continue your, I guess, I guess, how do you, so, so you've been in finance, venture capital, all this stuff, yeah. tech world for a good bit. Do yep. you keep your, um, philosophical, your literary side cultivated and what are your habits and practices for sort of keeping fresh on that stuff? Yeah, sure. Yes. So I try to stay fresh on a lot of topics. Some of them are philosophical, some of them, uh, just branching out into other areas like economics and computer science. Um, the, uh, for me though, it starts with daily routine. I start every day reading. It's, it's just my, this goes way back to when I was a teen that I got a lot of work done in the morning hours. I'm a morning person. So nowadays I spend at least two hours if I can every morning reading over a cup of coffee, probably hmm. at a Starbucks. Hmm. Um, that's, and and I, is that I, like, I, is that like work reading research or is that like you're reading something completely unrelated to work? It, or do you, you not know, know the, do you not know the difference anymore? I don't, I, I don't know the difference. Yeah, I don't either. Like everything can turn into work. <laughs> I, I read science fiction. I read philosophy and yet I find a lot of the ideas being drawn into conversations in the Bay Area. Now, this could be just the the nerdy geekiness of the Bay Area, but there are a lot of uh, conversations that keep getting repeated uh, and they are very philosophical in their nature. So one of them is this question about uh, the, the future of artificial intelligence. Mm. Uh, is it something we have to be careful about? Do we have to fear the future AI that it might somehow destroy civilization as we know it, if it gets out of control. Do you have an explanation uh, on that? Uh, you know, I tend to think that uh, I, I, I believe it will be a problem. I think we're just early on getting scared about it. So I think it's so Elon Musk, I think, recently donated 10 million or so to an institute that'll study this question. And I think that could be valuable. But I just I just worry that uh, a lot of the hysteria and fear generated by these conversations might lead to hostile regulations yeah yeah or all sorts of problems that will inhibit innovation yeah, i kind of feel like like the best safeguards come from just jumping in and trying to continue to develop things rather than yeah. sitting back and, and speculating so much that we talk ourselves out of exploration but right yeah, and, and I'm, so i'm I, an optimist I, I can't remember who but they were two big time venture capitalists who uh suggested that the government should regulate artificial intelligence to the same degree that it regulates nuclear power. And <laughs> whoa, you know, that, that would just crush so many new startups oh. I know off the ground. Um, put it, put it in the hands of uh, an entity that I don't necessarily feel safer with. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I noticed in your, in your Twitter picture, I think you're reading uh, Ulysses. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So are yeah. you, are, I got to ask you, are you a Joyce fan? 
Uh, I have this ambivalent love-hate relationship with the the modernist writers. Because <laughs> so, I picked among... up somebody told me that Finnegan's Wake holds all the secrets of the universe, so I oh, ordered man. it, and I've been like oh, trying oh. to penetrate this thing, and yeah, I can't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, I think Joyce is either the greatest fraud uh, of of all of art history <laughs> or literature, or one of the most brilliant people. <laughs> you you haven't decided yet, huh? Yeah, I mean that is literally gibberish. He has it's like hundreds of pages of gibberish so <laughs> well so so there's two things at first i was like gibberish yeah. this is just ridiculous it's written to be ridiculous and, and it's a big fraud yeah. but there are two things that made me second guess that one i found this like youtube video of some irish guy reading it out loud and it's okay yeah it, it actually sounds like something when it's read aloud in the proper mm -hmm. accent and then yep. i was like oh this is kind of it's actually kind of funny and witty yep. but then the other part was joseph campbell has this skeleton's key to finish oh, wow. its wake. No and, okay, yeah, sure. so I ordered that and I started reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, Campbell is convinced that this does hold <laughs> all the secrets of the universe and now yes. I'm starting to, yeah, so. Isn't this the great riddle? Right? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Michael uh, Chabon, I think Chabon, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he wrote uh, Cavalier and Clay and, and uh, The Wonder Boys. He has a great essay on Joyce and Finnegan's Wake in, uh, I think it was in the New York Review of Books. You can Google for it. it's it's really phenomenal uh definitely check that out if you're interested i will for, I, I went to visit ireland a year ago last winter and and i brought along ulysses i hadn't read it since i was uh 21 so i went back to read it again and uh you know it, it was a struggle it was it was really hard i <laughs> i find my i i there was this urge to in in the novel to to raise the common man to um, the levels of, of heroism that that the Odyssey and the Iliad that you know some mm. some kind of comparison there, and and it really fell flat with me this time because I had just I I, I was on a Homer kick. I, there's this English poet Christopher Logue who has a beautiful translation of of the Iliad that he's put together. It's really it has a feel of like T.S. Eliot and Quentin Tarantino combined in one, <laughs> and so I so lots of violence. Lots of heroic struggle, and then I and then I come back to Joyce, and, and there's a whole chapter on him, uh, you know, taking a dump and reading the paper and like eating breakfast is like this is not heroic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard for me with with literature. I've always struggled because I I have this very deeply embedded life philosophy that I don't do things that I don't enjoy doing. And yeah. much and much of the sort of modernist stuff, and it's like this with postmodern art or music, like right. it's it's sort of intended to be uncomfortable and, and I yeah, have a hard time sitting through and pushing, making the breakthrough to get the intellectual payoff, which sometimes exists and sometimes doesn't at all. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like, man, you know, I don't read enough fiction as it is. And if I'm going to read fiction, I want some fiction that I love. Give me some like Robert Heinlein or something, you know, that yeah. I'm just like devouring. But this goes back to the Academy and how it's warped writing and literary prestige. Uh, I don't know why or when that exactly happened. Maybe I guess around 1930s, but or post World War II, suddenly writers had to go through creative writing programs or go through and hmm. get a BA. That wasn't the case in the past, and and for whatever reason, uh, the writers that come out of these programs, they've been, uh, they're not as interested in story and character as the writers of the past. Hmm. And, and this is so jarring if you compare it to the uh, the depth and the power of the one hour drama in, in on TV in recent years. If you go oh, back, 
TV like, has gotten amazingly yeah. good. So like The Sopranos, Mad Men, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, whatever the case may be, is like these are compelling stories with great characters who are multidimensional, sometimes even anti-heroes, and and yet it is just so powerful. And so I wonder is like you can name these characters of American television: Tony Soprano, yeah. Don Draper. Like I I defy anyone to name a character who is as interesting and important culturally in American fiction in the last 30 years. It's huh. just not there. Yeah. It's a fascinating, uh, one of my favorite, um, there's a lecture series and there's actually a book as well by, uh, Paul Cantor, uh, commerce and culture. And, and he kind of debunks this myth of you know, a lot of the myths around the, the arts and, and literary scene. But one of them is that, you know, um, the marketplace and producing for a wide commercial audience is always this terrible thing that taints art. And he's like, look, Dickens yeah. was writing serial novels, like responding yeah, right. immediately to public demand. Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare did the same thing. He was famous for it. He was a businessman. He wrote a play called yeah. as you like it. That was literally like, here, let me give you exactly what you want audience. You know, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, fascinating stuff. So do you still, yeah. um, do you write and are you interested in sort of doing, uh, I don't know, like fiction or, or poetry or is that, yeah, is that something so, that you do? I, you know, privately I do, uh, write some of that stuff. If none of it is good to share, <laughs> I don't, not, not yet, but one of the, I do have a project in mind for a book. I just haven't gotten around to, uh, I, I've, I've started collecting material for it. Uh, just one of the interesting people I find in the 20th century is this guy, John von Neumann. Is uh, polymath. He invented uh, game theory. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I know his name. Yeah, that's okay. Laid the groundwork for uh, quantum mechanics, at least the mathematical foundations, and then was involved with uh, the, the creation of the, the nuclear bomb. And so it's like this guy is, is by all measure, you know, everyone said he had the fastest mind uh, than anyone else. He could calculate seven digit sums in his head in seconds and so on. And so and if you read more about his life, you get this, this glimpse of, of a, a lost era in Europe. Hmm. There was a set of uh, European scientists who fled to the United States in the thirties. He was one of them. Um, and, and when they were at Los Alamos, they became known as the Martians because hmm. they had these thick Hungarian accents. They were all from Budapest. Uh, so you had John von Neumann, uh, Edward Teller, uh, Leo Szilard, and Eugene Vigner, these guys, they they were known as the Martians because they talked like you could barely understand them. They could calculate faster than anyone in their heads. So there's no way they're human. And so the joke was they, they came from Mars. Uh, so it was like what what fascinates me is they all grew up in the same neighborhoods of Budapest. Uh, and yet they had such a profound influence on the course of 20th century, century science and technology. So I, what, I, what I have in mind is eventually writing about this in some way. Uh, I haven't figured out quite how to do it, but I, I imagine it's a book length project and uh, we'll just to, get started. Oh, yeah. We'll have to bring you back on to talk about that when you're uh, when you're done with it. Uh, yeah. So hold me accountable. All I, right. I will. We'll, we'll be checking in. OK, so I've got two. I've got two final questions for you. Yeah. One is and you talked about what your mornings look like, but I think there's this kind of this mysterious aura around venture capital or Silicon Valley. Like yep. what is just like, what's a typical day look like for you? What are you doing with your day? Are you just like doing yoga and going to, you know, <laughs> disruption conferences all day? What, what is it like out there? You know, uh, I'm sure other people have different days, but, uh, our days. So I start off the day reading, 
And then uh, when I get into the swing of things, probably around 9 a.m., uh, I take a lot of meetings. It tend like most of my days tend to be filled up with either meeting potential uh, investments, so working with entrepreneurs, uh, talking to the people that I've worked with in the past. I get a lot. You know, it's one of the cool things about working in venture capital is uh, you get to try to help people in all sorts of different ways. So uh, it could be a company we've invested in where they need help making a hire they have a position to fill or there's a strategic question do we launch this product now what if our competitors start imitating us what you know how do we respond to that so it's like wow i get to it's kind of amazing that i get to try to contribute in all these different ways and it's a it's an awesome challenge so my day tends to be filled up with those kinds of conversations and then uh, uh me and my colleague we spend a lot of time together so in between these meetings we have with uh potential companies we'd like to work with or just people we we want to help out in general is we try to step aside too to make time to think about you know what is the future of what yeah. we're doing how do we see ourselves uh you know always trying to be better at what we do and uh how are we going to plan for that meetings are so brutal because they put you in constant response react mode yeah you know, you're, you're hearing from things and then you're responding to them and it makes it so hard to carve out time to be in sort of long-term planning, building, creating mode. That's a, yep. that's a huge, that's a huge struggle. Do you, so do you have to just sort of block off some chunks of time to be like, no yeah, minutes so, here. I've got to so, be. Yep. We literally block off time to do that type of stuff. It'll be end of the week. We'll do sort of a, a week in review. What are we thinking about for next week? Uh, and then once a month we'll do uh, sort of, okay, what is the, the bigger grander vision? We don't want to get lost in the, in the weeds. How do we step back and, and uh, really like increase our, our perspective. So I'm going to ask you one final question. What, yep. what would you like to see more of in the world? Courage and curiosity. Hmm. I think, uh, one of the wiser things Peter ever, ever said, I think it's in his book, but he has this line that, um, there's a shortage of courage and abundance of genius. And, and I kind of believe that it's like, I think people aren't, taking the risks they should and I, I and and i'm not saying that, that they should take it and fail uh, i just think that i i think there's so much value to to create in this world and you know you're only here once and what are you going to do when the chips are down right it's like i i just wish people would do it more and and, and it applies in all sorts of facets of life and, and one of the weird things i'll say and, and this stepping aside from like starting companies and so on is like, there's this uh, issue of commitment in marriage and, and, and where I see it takes longer for people to want to get married. Uh, they're worried about, you know, oh my God, it's such a huge step. It's a huge commitment. And, and, and so living in, in that kind of culture, it's almost in awe that I look back at uh, someone like Elizabeth Taylor which is weird. It's like, okay, why is she, she got married five times. There's something admirable about someone who's like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going in. I'm just committing. <laughs> oh, didn't work out. All right. I'm going, committing, going in. It's like, holy cow, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. That, so no, I think that's a, I think that's actually a powerful illustration. There's a, there's a connection there with the way people view maybe marriage or relationships and sort of implicit thoughts about fate and well, yeah. there's, you know, there's one right person, there's one right path and I got to be really damn sure 
without seeing their own agency and say, look, this is a choice. I get to make it if I want to. It's a calculated risk. There's always a chance it doesn't work. Do I want it or not? That's the only question. Not, is it, is it what, you know, is it the one thing, the one path? Um, I think kind of breaking from that mindset could be powerful. So I'll make one book recommendation. Yes, please do. I love this book. It's called the present age by Soren Kierkegaard. It's a, it's a small pamphlet he wrote and uh, it touches on this idea of, of courage and, and living uh, the life that is true to you. And he has a parable of, of the ice skater and the gem. And I don't know what inspired him to write this, but he talks about this, this game where there's some gem on a uh, lake of ice. And, and it used to be the case, I guess, that people would skate all the way to the gem. And, and if they fell into the ice cold water, uh, you know, we, the society used to love them for it. But now we live in an age of where no one takes risks. And instead, people skate as close as they can to where the ice thins and then pull back. And all of society is geared to celebrate these people for how clever they are for not diving for the gym. And I read this and I thought it applied. And maybe I think it was written in the 1840s, but it seems so spot on for our current life. My guest today has been Michael Gibson, the co-founder of the 1517 Fund. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at William underscore Blake. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.